Well, good evening. We're turning to the book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18. And we're going to read the first 16 verses together. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the lands to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He's not here, they would take an, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Amen. This is the word of God. Personally, I love to read history and I have grown to love reading church history. There's something so especially fascinating to read of great works of God, how he brought people to faith in great numbers, how there were periods of time where even in this city that we live in, the gospel went forth evidently in all of its power, transforming people's lives by faith in Christ. But of course, one of the downsides of reading this sort of history is that there comes a point in the day where you have to put the book down. And you have to look up from the book and you have to look at your surroundings and you realize that you are living in a very different day. Very often compared to the excitement of what you've been reading, you're living in really quite a mundane existence. Wouldn't that have been the case for the first readers of this history of Israel? They had been brought up with the stories of Abraham and Isaac 
and Jacob and Moses and Samuel and David. Times when God was really at work for his people. But when they received the books of kings, they were a group of lonely exiles stranded in a foreign land. The glory days were past. What were they to make of their current existence? What would it mean for them to live lives faithful to God in their circumstances? Well, I wonder if we get something like that in these verses that we've just read in 1 Kings 18. If you've been following with us or not, think what we've already encountered in Elijah's life. We have seen the heavens closed up, no more rain at Elijah's say-so. We have seen Elijah provided with food by ravens. We have seen him going to the widow's house and there is this flour and oil that just never runs out, even though there's a famine all around. And last week we saw this most amazing thing, that he raised a poor widow's son back to life. Not surprisingly, when we looked at that passage, we considered that God is at work. But we come to the passage that we've just read, and in these 16 verses, the miracles have dried up. Does God go quiet for a while? Is God taking these verses just to catch his breath? They are very much less exciting than any of the other parts. Well, even when we read of that which is a bit more ordinary, the writer of First Kings wants us to see God is still at work. God is still at work. So let's look at how this passage presents that for us. Uh, back in the first week of this series, in these chapters which cover the life of Elijah, we, we saw that the times in which Elijah lived were times that were characterized by great wickedness. Ahab was the king of Israel, and we're told that he did more evil and more to provoke the Lord than all the kings that had, that had gone before him. And one of the ways that this was summed up was in his marriage to Jezebel, daughter of the king of the Sidonians. She was a fanatic for her pagan religion. She was a worshipper of Baal, and her husband more than indulged. He built a temple for Baal in the capital Samaria. And we learn in our passage tonight that Baal worship was not one of those religions that was done in a spirit of tolerance. No, Jezebel had God's prophets put to death. That's mentioned in verse 4 and in verse 13. Worshipping false gods was a grievous sin against God who had bought and who had rescued this nation. He had kept them. He had provided for them. And for them to go and chase after other gods was, was to break covenant with God. And the promised consequences for breaking the covenant were that fruitlessness would come. The harvests and the blessings would dry up. And this is what Elijah was sent to tell King Ahab. This was the news that God was enforcing the terms of the covenant. There's going to be no more rain. This place is full of idolatry, rejection of God. God is going to withhold his blessing. And so that has been the case. It's persisted for three years by the time this word comes to Elijah. No harvest. It's been a famine. And when we think of that environment, we see in these opening verses of chapter 18, the man with the most dangerous job in Israel. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, saying, go to Ahab again. 
I'm going to bring the rain. And what we'll see next week is that the rain would come only after a decisive display of God's power and a decisive display of Baal's nothingness. Elijah, he was God's mouthpiece, uniquely sent to pronounce this drought. And over the last three years, it has brought misery to this nation. No doubt many had died. No doubt the TV screens were filled with the tea time news of children who had no way of getting food. People who were helpless and hopeless and starving to death. Life was uncomfortable. Everything was difficult. No one knew with any certainty where their next meal was coming from. And so when the word of the Lord comes to Elijah to leave Zarephath, go back to Israel, see the king. Well, Elijah's faced with a number of things that would put him off. Not least of all the perhaps 70-mile journey on foot in the midst of a famine. But aren't we also given a glimpse of Ahab's attitude towards Elijah in these verses? Did you see how Obadiah explained this in verse 10? Ahab is demanding that anyone who says they haven't seen Elijah, that they cross their heart and hope to die. More than that, he doesn't take well to any Elijah jokes. Uh, Perhaps a little bit like someone uh, making a joke about having a bomb in their suitcase at the airport. It, It went down like that. No Elijah jokes in Ahab's presence. If you say, oh, I saw Elijah over there, and Ahab goes to find him, and he's not there, you could expect to be killed. That's what Obadiah says, isn't it, in verses 11 and 12? King Ahab is seeking out Elijah. And it's not to have a coffee and a catch-up. If he's discussed it with his wife Jezebel at all, it was out of a desire to harm Elijah. Maybe to try and force him to turn back on the rain. And so for Elijah to be sent back to Ahab is a big deal. It is dangerous. But Elijah is not the guy who has the most dangerous job in Israel. It's the other guy, Obadiah. What we have in these verses is all that we know about him. But what a guy. We're told this is a man who has an important job. He is literally over Ahab's household. This is the guy who was entrusted with stewarding the king's properties and the king's land. But the remarkable thing is that he feared the Lord greatly. You see how that's described in verse 3? He feared the Lord greatly. From all that we know, this could not be a less likely circumstance to find ourselves in. In the midst of this wicked administration, here is a believer. Someone who hasn't followed the king's lead and adopted pagan religion, but someone who has remained true to the Lord. And it's more than that, perhaps because of his privileged job, He has overheard some of the conversations with the queen where she's expressed her intention to to kill the prophets of the Lord. And so when he hears of these plans, Obadiah springs into into discreet action and he keeps a hundred prophets safe. Two caves, each hiding 50 prophets of God. Remember, it's a time of famine. But Obadiah finds a way to feed and sustain these 100 prophets. 
This is like one of those classic scenes from uh, war movies, isn't it? In the attic, a family is hiding a, a couple of families of Jews from the Nazis because they know if they're found, they'll be shipped off to a concentration camp. So every time there's a knock at the door, every time there's a visitor comes to the house, the tension is palpable. Everyone is trying to act normally. Everyone's trying to, to pretend like there's, there's, there's nothing up there. No one is glancing at the Ramsey ladder. Because they know if they're found hiding these guys, they'll be arrested. I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing Obadiah is doing here. And all the more remarkable is he's doing it from the very heart of the enemy regime. He's over Ahab's household, and here he is. He's the guy who is hiding the prophets of the Lord. I mean, just try and imagine the anxiety that this man must have lived with. His was the most dangerous job in Israel, looking over his shoulder every day, worried that maybe someone has tracked his movements, maybe someone is wondering why he's, he's stockpiling bread. Far more dangerous job than Elijah had. Elijah's job was to make a declaration and then to be taken into hiding for three years. In doing that, God's word is symbolically taken away from Ahab. But Obadiah, he's living on the front line in a wicked society, working for an organization with a strong anti-God bias, and yet he fears the Lord. He serves the Lord. It is remarkable the tendency we have when we read these Old Testament stories that we, uh, we love to put ourselves into the hero's shoes, you know, be an Elijah and all that. But Elijah had a unique calling. There's not many who you'll find even in the scriptures who were called to a ministry like his. But far more typical is someone like Obadiah. For example, we see this very thing in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. He rose to be prime minister in Egypt and yet was faithful to the Lord. Was used by the Lord to save Abraham's line from being wiped out. This is what we see in the life of Daniel in the Old Testament, who was exalted to a similar role in Babylon, yet remained faithful to God in prayer, even when threatened with the den of lions. And we get glimpses of this in the New Testament as well. Paul makes references to those of Caesar's household, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what an encouragement for the small band of exiles who first read this history. Along with Daniel, they're stranded in Babylon, surrounded by a pagan culture, one that is trying to fashion them into their own mold, an encouragement to fear the Lord and to serve him where they can. Now, of course, few people attain to high office, but an awful lot of us are living and working in an environment that has little or no respect or even time for Jesus Christ. But without being oversimplistic here, I think if a man like Obadiah could do what he did and remain true to the Lord, maybe you need to take courage tonight that it is possible to exist in our education system, in our health service, as a civil servant, 
maybe even to work for the BBC, and yet still be true to the Lord as you fear the Lord and serve the Lord. Maybe you need that encouragement tonight to stand firm in your confidence in Christ and your commitment to serve him where he has placed you, especially when the pressure all around you is to compromise. Well, we first hear Obadiah speak in his conversation with the king in verses 5 and 6. And that conversation is very revealing, more about the king than about Obadiah. And what's presented to us in those verses is the different horizons of the godly and the wicked. As we've mentioned, Obadiah, he's, he's willing to risk life and limb in order to preserve the prophets of God. But what about Ahab? What about the king? What is his priority here? Well, he and Obadiah, they're going to scour the land to find if there are any remaining springs of water so that they might find some pasture land. That's what he's looking for in verse 5, that we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. There's a deliberate contrast being presented to us here. On the one hand, you have Obadiah who is working, risking his life to prevent the prophets from being cut off. On the other hand, you have the king putting all his efforts into making sure that the horses and the mules aren't cut off. We're meant to see this as a preposterous contrast. In theory, at least, King Ahab actually has it in his power to bring this famine to an end. The suffering of his people the deaths of children for want of food, he could bring it all to an end. In fact, look down uh, this chapter to next week's portion when Elijah and Ahab meet in verse 17. Ahab greets Elijah. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Ahab ans- uh, Elijah answers Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. It was because of Ahab's abandonment of God and his leading the nation to abandon God that this calamity has come in the first place. But what Ahab needs to remember is that God is never vindictive in his judgment. He brings this messenger and he brings this famine into Ahab and Israel's life in order to bring them to repentance. Not to make them squirm, but to make them squirm that they might come to repentance. Just as Ahab had got them into this mess, so by repentance, he could do a whole lot more than save a few mules. He could restore the fortunes of the whole nation. Don't put your efforts, King Ahab, into saving the animals. Put your efforts into seeking the Lord's. But what's presented to us here is something that is typical of the rebelliousness of the human heart. In a sense, Ahab is not exceptional, perhaps in the degree to which he goes, but his heart is not something that surprises us if we've read the Bible. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt when Moses made it plain that God ordered him to release the Israelites from slavery, even though plague after plague fell upon the nation and upon Pharaoh and his family, his heart only hardened 
against God. He'd rather go through the pain than bow his knee before God. The Lord Jesus tells a story in the New Testament, you'd find it in Luke chapter 16, about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lives in plenty and he ignores Lazarus the beggar who sits at his gate day after day. Well, they both die and the rich man, he opens his eyes and he finds himself in hell. And far off he sees Lazarus the beggar who sat at his gate in Abraham's bosom. And what does this rich man in hell say he says i'm uh, abraham i'm parched in this flame it's unbearable send lazarus send lazarus dip his finger in some water that he might cool my tongue you know there can be surely no more fearful experience than to experience the wrath of god but not even that on its own brings about a repentant heart For that rich man that Jesus spoke of has a heart like any other, left to its own devices, even faced with the severest judgment of God, it will not yield. This is what we're like, and Ahab is just another example. If we would acknowledge our sinfulness, confess it to God, accept forgiveness in Christ as the gift that it is, live our lives for him, then we can... We can know life as it was meant to be lived in relationship with the living God, knowing his blessing, his approval, his acceptance. But that would involve coming to the cross of Jesus Christ and admitting that so lost am I, so far away from God am I, that I need the Son of God to suffer and die in my place. And instinctively we kick against that. Our pride hates that message. And so rather than turn to Christ, so many settle for, if I may steal what Ahab's doing, they settle for just trying to rescue a few mules here and there. We fill our lives with other stuff to try and make this existence bearable, to find some purpose. And so if it is the case for you tonight that you would say that you live for your work, you live for your reputation even for your family or for money or for acceptance with others, and that is to the complete disregard of God. If Christ is not the central reason why you live your life, then at best you've, you've managed to save a few horses and mules. But you know, we'd rather have that than admit that we need the Lord. And I hope that's not any of us here tonight. Still resisting God still resisting the gospel. It's interesting that Ahab does eventually humble himself before God. He ends up mourning for his sin in chapter 21. But a whole lot of irreversible damage is done before he gets to that point. But what we're seeing is that God is still at work. He didn't produce immediate repentance in Ahab, but even in this famine, surely contributing something to eventually break down this stubborn king's heart. In chapter 21 of 1 Kings, uh, we'll come to the circumstances around it when we get there, but 
This is what God says to Elijah. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. God never, God never rejects true repentance. And that's what Ahab so evidently lacks at this point in our narrative. It's so striking to me that even though this is one of the quieter portions of Elijah's life, God is still at work. And it's striking that God is still at work even in, and I would go as far as to say especially in, the ordinary things, the ordinary means of life. We know how God preserved Elijah in these days, by doing the miraculous. Here we learn about a hundred other prophets whom the Lord preserved. And seemingly not a miracle in sight. You see, miracles accompanied Elijah for a particular purpose. That was expressed by the widow at the end of uh, chapter 17 that we saw last week. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This is what the miracles were for. They, They attested to the authenticity of the messenger. But these other hundred prophets, they're spared by what is quite ordinary means. A man hid them in a cave and fed them bread and water. A man who would have been unlikely to be able to do this had he not attained to high office in the royal household. As you read the account of the life and times of Elijah, our eyes are to be increasingly opened to the unseen but the very deliberate work of God in fulfilling his purposes. There are a hundred prophets being kept safe. Later we're going to read that God has 7,000 who have resisted the king's efforts to adopt Baal worship. And we know nothing of how God did that. Ahab and Jezebel were exceedingly wicked. They presided over a period of spiritual famine doing everything in their power to turn people away from the Lord and even to kill those who represented the Lord. But this is what this story tells us. You can't can't get rid of God like that. And what a wonderful irony that from the very palace where the decrees to execute God's representatives were given, here was someone working away to preserve them. God had raised Obadiah to this position of prominence for this very time. It was a time in Israel's history when wickedness seemed to prevail, but in reality, wickedness can never ultimately prevail because God is infinitely greater than any of his enemies. Yes, we see that in his miracles, But we see that in his everyday sovereignty, his providence with which he cares for his people and fulfills his purposes. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what do you mean by the providence of God? The answer goes like this. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, 
fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There were 100 prophets of God hiding in two caves who were praising the providence of their gods. And it came by the hand of a man who simply carried bread and water. It came by the hand of a man who it seems from this discussion he has with Elijah never knew any miracles. If you look at verse 12, what is it that he's concerned will happen? As soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. In other words, he's saying, you know, Elijah, uh, this miraculous rescue that God does, that's for guys like you. I've never seen anything like that, but God will do that for you. But here was a guy who did what he could for the Lord. Do not be surprised by what God can do when ordinary folks do the will of God. The ordinary stuff of showing love, of sharing the gospel with others. Because this is what God uses. The ordinary stuff of being genuinely invested in other people's lives that we might help them to follow Jesus. Now I don't know where God has placed you. But I do know that God uses ordinary jars of clay like you and me. To bring about his purposes. So let us step into this new week with a sense of expectation. Maybe you're helping with the Aberdeen CU mission this week. Who knows what God might do through your ordinary efforts. Maybe you're back into a workplace where Jesus is not very welcome. Who knows what opportunities may open for you as you patiently and consistently serve your Savior. Wherever you are, be confident, even when things seem quiet and ordinary. God is still at work. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your sovereignty. We want to thank you for the, for the truth that there is not a not a single collision of any two atoms in this universe that does not take place at your command and control. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you sustain all things by the word of your power and that that extends to the details of our lives. And Father, no doubt for some, these are not the, the happiest this is not the happiest season of life. There are trials and difficulties that come. But Father, we pray you'd help us to see that not just when things are quiet, but when things seem to be going against us, that you are still always exercising your providential care over your children. And so that whatever life deals to us, we receive it as from your fatherly hand. We thank you that ultimately you've promised to complete all your purposes 
to sum up all things in Christ as head over all. We thank you that he is the great goal of, of all of human history. And as we've read even in these verses tonight of this part of the great plan of redemption, we thank you that you used seemingly ordinary men like Obadiah and even ordinary men like Elijah to do extraordinary things, not because of what they were, but because of who you are. And we pray that that would be the confidence we have as we go into this week. As we pray for family members, work colleagues, those who we'll endeavor to reach in mission. We pray, Father, that you would give us a confidence that the success or failure of the work of the gospel does not start and end with us, but it is your work. And that you use the ordinary means to bring it to sinners. Do that this week through your people, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.